Well, Happy New Year, everybody. You look great, and uh, a special welcome if you're joining us online. And uh, just one more thing before we get started, because I just can't help myself, and I've been super good about knocking, not talking too much about Michigan football this year. <clears throat> a very special welcome to the University of Michigan fans. Come on now, what a football season, and tomorrow night in Houston, I don't know if you've heard, 7.30 p.m. under the lights, we have a chance to win a national championship for the first time in forever. And so, uh, I mean, we just have to say it. If you know what to say, you'll say it. And if not, you can watch on. But check it out. Who has it better than us? No, exactly. Okay, enough of that. Now, <clears throat> on to the things of the Lord. Today, we're beginning a new series called What is God Like? And actually, the series was inspired by something that I said during a talk that I gave last fall. So, yeah, I guess you could say I somehow managed to inspire myself. But here's how it went down. Uh, we were doing a teaching called, What is God Like? And during that teaching, we were exploring a conversation that Jesus had one day with his first followers. Uh, it's a conversation that I'm pretty sure would have left them speechless. And if you weren't with us, um, let me show you kind of what Jesus said to his disciples, kind of huddled them together. And then he said this, um, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. In, in other words, Jesus looks at his closest followers and he says, guys, the more you get to know me, the more you get to know God. Like, if you've seen me, you've seen him. And if you've watched me, you've watched him. And, and then in the talk, I, I said the thing that ended up inspiring the series. And um, so I actually went back and I'm going to quote myself. Ha. In the last slide, I was going to put me on the bottom, but I didn't. I missed opportunity. Anyway, here's what I said. I said, if you think about it, this is why those four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are so incredible. They literally document Jesus' revelation of what God is like. I said a bit differently, when you read the words of Jesus, you are reading the words of God. And when you see how Jesus responded to sinners and prodigals and Jews and Gentiles and even stuffy religious people, you actually get to see how God feels about sinners and prodigals and Jews and Gentiles and even stuffy religious people. God sent Jesus to show us what he's like. In other words, um, I, I was saying that these accounts of Jesus' life are invaluable because they actually contain the answers to the question of what God is like. And, and let's be honest, that is a question that people all over the world have been asking pretty much for as long as there have been people. And uh, if you study the history of religion, what you'll find is that all over the ancient world, people came up with very similar answers to the question of what God is like. And these answers included descriptive adjectives like temperamental, insecure, easily angered, and judgmental. You say, what, what, what is, what is, how is, what is the divine's posture towards people? Well, they're kind of temperamental, insecure, easily angered, and judgmental. You say, well, why would they come to this? Why people all over the world come to that conclusion? And what happened is they came to believe that the pain that they experienced in this life was the consequence of them somehow offending whoever it was who was ultimately in control. And so they came to view God or the gods, depending on the culture, as fundamentally set against them, sort of unstable beings that needed to be kept at bay through a steady stream 
of sacrifices, great and small. That's, of course, why you find all over the ancient world altars on which sacrifices were offered and temples where people would go to make sacrifices. So that's what people thought all over the ancient world. But here's the thing, and this is really good news, not just for them, but for us. Those adjectives are nothing like the God revealed to us by Jesus. In fact, he presented the one true God as being for us and with us and ahead of us, inviting us to turn away from the sin in our lives because it hurts us and hurts other people. And so that said, what I want to do in this series is explore the specifics of what we can learn about God by watching how Jesus interacted with people in the New Testament accounts of his life. And today to get us going, uh, I want to begin our study by sharing what I believe to be one of the most foundational and profound insights of all. And it goes like this, uh, whoever you are, And whatever you've done or haven't done in your life, God believes in you. And not just believes that you exist, because that's kind of obvious, right? But he believes that you have what it takes to be like Jesus. You have that potential. And before you object, because there's always like, well, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what's in my past. I'll tell you that the reason I can say that so confidently is because of one of the first events recorded in those accounts of Jesus' life, the calling of his first disciples. Uh, Now, before I show you that text, I kind of want to walk it through with you. I want to give you a bit of context because like we find around here so often, context really is key to understanding what's going on in the passage. And so I'll start with this. Uh, Almost all of Jesus' original disciples were from a three-town region near the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the region, uh, scholars call it the Orthodox Triangle. Uh, Because in Jesus' day, it was home to some of the most passionately devout Jews in the entire world. Uh, People from these towns were widely known for their insatiable desire to learn about and then follow the ways of God as described in the Old Testament. And, And so it's not surprising then that more famous Jewish teachers or rabbis came from this region than any other In fact, life in these small fishing villages was organized around the synagogue. And I brought a picture. This is the synagogue in Capernaum. It's one of the sites we visit when we go to Israel. And by the way, before you ask, those trips are on hold for just a bit, so stay tuned. But anyway, um, what's so striking when you visit the synagogue at Capernaum is its size. Um, In the first century in Jesus' day, Capernaum was a town of maybe a few hundred people, and the synagogue there sat as many as a thousand. So you get the sense that religious education was a big, big deal in this region of ancient Israel. And and along with that, not just the religious education of adults, but also the religious education of children, because they knew that they were only one generation away from their faith dying, and so they put the highest priority on the education of their children. And in fact, I found when I was preparing, um, there was a Jewish historian named Josephus who grew up in this region, and near the end of the first century, Here's what he wrote about his experience. He said, in this region, above all, we pride ourselves on the education of our children and regard as the most essential task in life, the observance of our laws, speaking of the Old Testament laws, and of the pious practices, the traditions based thereupon, which we have inherited. What someone gave to us, we put a top priority on passing on to our children. This obedience to the Old Testament and passing that faith forward were the undisputed priorities in the Jewish communities where Jesus' first followers were raised. 
Uh, additionally, and this isn't surprising, uh, this region was where the concept of discipleship was more prominent than anywhere else in the ancient world. Like hundreds of rabbis came to this region to call disciples. And so if you think about it, it's really not that surprising that it was to this region that Jesus came to call his first disciples. But that, of course, raises a really interesting question, um, especially if you're new to church. It's like, well, okay, a bunch of rabbis went there to call disciples. What's a disciple? I mean, if you grew up in church like I did, you've heard the word disciple more times than you can count. I googled it. It shows up 250 times in the accounts of Jesus' life. So it's all over those accounts. But, but what did it mean to be a disciple in Jesus' day? And uh, in order to answer that question, what I need to do is briefly explain to you what the religious education of children looked like in that region of the Galilee. And, and so just basically scholars suggest that it was roughly organized into three phases. Uh, during the first phase, both boys and girls between the age of five and ten were, would go to the synagogues and they would be taught the first five books in the Old Testament of our Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And these books are the ones that are historically attributed to Moses, and they contain Israel's history from their birth as a nation until they reached the land that God had promised to their ancestor Abraham. And, and really, what's really amazing, at least to me, is that scholars note that many, many Jewish boys and girls would have memorized these books by the age of 10, like all of them. And to think, I was always super proud of myself when I memorized one verse when I was growing up in church and I got a piece of candy. Anybody with me on this? Yeah, there's no job. I'm like, Jesus wept. Candy. Yeah, there you go, right? That's the shortest verse in the Bible. You can, that's just for free. Yeah. Anyway, at the end of this first phase, around the age of 10, the girls would exit formal education in order to stay home with their mothers and learn how to manage a family. And most of the boys would exit formal education in order to learn a trade with their fathers. And as you can imagine, in these towns along the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, that often meant they would be trained to fish. But see, the best male students between the ages of 10 and 13 would be invited to continue their education by exploring and memorizing the rest of the Old Testament, like Genesis all the way to Malachi, so 10 to 13. And, and then at the conclusion of this phase, the vast majority of the remaining boys would exit formal education to join their fathers in the family business. But, but a few of the most outstanding students were invited to pursue further study in which they were taught to debate the text with their teachers. And they would do that for a couple of years, and at the conclusion of that phase, that third phase, the best of the best of the best students were invited to approach a rabbi and ask their permission to become their disciples. And th this is a path that would allow them to one day become rabbis themselves. And, and I know for us, you're like, why would anybody want to become a rabbi? That's like a pastor. Who would want to do that? And I hear you, but... Here's the thing, in Jesus' day, being a rabbi was the greatest honor in their culture because they were so aligned with the text. The, the text was their priority. Uh, there's a scholar named David Biven who spent a lot of time kind of researching this, and here's what he said in a talk I was listening to. He said, rabbis were the most esteemed, most respected people in Jewish society. The goal of every child was to become a rabbi, a recognized teacher of Torah, that's the, the Old Testament law in society. And he says the competition would have been extreme. And, and so if a Jewish boy believed that he was among the best of the best of the best, 
he would approach a rabbi and ask to be interviewed so as to determine if the rabbi thought he was a worthy candidate for discipleship. And the vast majority of applicants were not found worthy. But if they were, then the rabbi would say three words to this, to this teen. He would say, come, follow me. And it's worth noting that in the first century, a disciple was way more than just a student. I mean, we generally think of a, a student as someone who wants to know what their teacher knows so that they can get a good grade on the test. But, but to be a disciple, it was way more involved than that. A disciple didn't just want to know what their teacher knew. They wanted to be just like their rabbi in every possible way. They wanted to walk with God like their rabbi walked with God. And so consequently in Jesus' day, discipleship was a very intense and very personal educational relationship. Like as the rabbi lived and taught and interacted with people, his disciples listened and watched and imitated him. They wanted to know what their rabbi knew so that they could be the same type of person their rabbi was in the world. Um, I found a description of discipleship in the first century from a famous author named Dallas Willard. You may have heard of him if you're a nerd like me, but here's what Dallas said. Uh, he said, when Jesus walked among humankind, there was a certain simplicity to being his disciple. Primarily, it meant to go with him in an attitude of study, obedience, and imitation. There were no correspondence courses. One knew what to do and what it would cost. Family and friends were deserted for long periods of time to go with Jesus as he walked and walked and walked and walked from place to place, announcing, showing, and explaining the governance of God. Disciples had to be with him to learn what he did. If they wanted to be like him, they had to be with him. And so now, that said, I want to take you to a famous passage from a man named Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. And it's a passage that's set along the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in the town of Capernaum, in the Orthodox Triangle. So Matthew uh, recorded that one day, he said, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Okay, so far so good. And then this is where things get interesting. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once, Matthew says, they left their nets and followed him. Now, I grew up in church, like many of you, and I studied this passage many, many times. But I'll never forget the first time that I really paid attention to it and noticed how strange it is. I remember thinking, you know, did Jesus just leverage some sort of mind control on these two brothers? Was he like, you will come with me? And they were like, we will come with you. I mean, I was into sci-fi. That could have happened, right? But like, why would they simply drop everything to follow Jesus? What about their livelihoods? What about their families? But see, as many of you have already connected, perhaps the answer to that question is in the context. I mean, think about it. Why were these brothers working as fishermen? I mean, yeah, it's what their parents did. But, but if you think about it, they were fishermen because they hadn't been good enough to be disciples of a rabbi, or at least... So they thought until the day Jesus invited them to follow him. Now check out what Matthew tells us happened next. He says, going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, uh, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. So same kind of situation except dad's with them. 
It says Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. In other words, like without warning or conversation, James and John just sort of abandon their dad. And apparently, Zebedee just let them go. But see, as I imagine it, Zebedee would have been thrilled. Like he had seen Jesus around prior to this. He had heard Jesus teach. And so I, be I bet he was absolutely beside himself excited that Jesus had called his sons. Like I bet around the campfire that night, right? Along the shores, see a Galilee, light the campfire, the moon, the mountains, it's beautiful. I bet he gathered the townspeople together and said, oh yeah, you may notice that my boys are not with me tonight and you may wonder why. And I will tell you. A rabbi, oh yeah, Jesus, the rabbi, yeah, he came along and invited my boys to follow him. He believes they have the potential to be like him. I always knew they had it in them, right? Like, take after their old man. Apple does not fall far from the tree, as they say, right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, as, as Matthew's account continued, I think things get even more interesting because Matthew actually detailed his own invitation to follow Jesus. So here's, here's what he wrote. He said, uh, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And it's a bit obvious, but I think it's worth noting, Matthew was in the tax collector's booth because he was a tax collector. And that doesn't mean that much to you and me today, although we're generally not fond of IRS employees, unless you're here and you're one, and then we love you and Jesus loves you. But you know those other ones, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah, but it meant something very significant to the first people to read this narrative because in Jesus' day, tax collectors were social outcasts, and for good reason. See, the Roman Empire, who occupied Israel at that time, auctioned off the right to collect taxes in the territories they controlled to local people. And under Roman law, if someone owned the right to collect taxes for Rome, they could charge as much extra as they wanted for themselves. And so practically this meant that Matthew was collecting taxes to support the empire that was occupying his country while personally benefiting from the arrangement. And that's why he and like all the other Roman tax collectors were so hated. In fact, if you read those accounts of Jesus' life closely, you'll see there are often two groups that are talked about as being kind of far from God. There's tax collectors and sinners. And I love that. It's almost like the sinners got together and there was like a meeting and they're like, well, we're not going to have the tax collectors with us. They're way too bad, right? And so they were like kicked out of the sinner club. But anyway, Matthew recorded that one day Jesus, along with Peter and Andrew and James and John, walked up to him as he was in the tax collector booth collecting taxes and said two words that changed his life forever. He said, Matthew, follow me. And of course, Matthew got up and followed him. If you place yourself in this scene, just imagine it with me. The other disciples would have been shocked. I mean, they hadn't seen themselves as worthy of being disciples until the day Jesus called them, but they certainly would have thought, come on, Jesus, not a tax collector. If he isn't disqualified, then nobody is disqualified. And as I imagine it, Jesus, knowing that must have been running through their heads, just smiled and kept walking because training was beginning. And Matthew started following not because he believed that he had what it took to be like Jesus, but because apparently Jesus believed that he had the potential to be like him. 
Anyway, this isn't surprising, um, but as Matthew's account continued, one of the central tensions that emerged was whether or not the disciples believed that they could really be like Jesus. Because Jesus was always doing incredible and even impossible things. And so, of course, they doubted. My favorite example of this is actually a scene from a night I think the disciples never forgot. And Jesus had sent them out on a boat from Capernaum out into the Sea of Galilee while he went up on a mountain nearby to pray. And uh, Matthew says, shortly after we embarked, a wind arose that sort of kept us from making the crossing. And we battled it and battled it for hours. And then at some point between two and, or three and six in the morning, rather, uh, Matthew says, you know, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. He says, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I don't be afraid. And I love this story. Like the disciples are caught in a storm. Jesus walks on the water. The disciples freak out. I would have too. And Jesus said what he always says when the disciples freak out, you know, don't be afraid. But then as the account continued, things got really interesting. Check out what Jesus' disciple Peter said next. He says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And before we go any further, there's a question we really should be asking. I mean, why does Peter think he can walk on water? Obviously, he's never done it before. And he's aware that, like, in the natural order of things, walking on water shouldn't be possible. So why would he even ask? Well, I would argue he asked because Jesus, his rabbi, is walking on the water. And he knows that he's training to be just like his rabbi. So as I imagine it, I think Peter reasoned that if he's supposed to be just like Jesus, and if Jesus walked on the water, then maybe, just maybe, he too could walk on the water if Jesus invited him to do so. And so he asked, and Jesus responded, come. Says, then Peter got down from the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus, but but he says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. In other words, for a moment, Peter had the incredible experience of doing something impossible. But then, as he was literally walking on the water, he began to wonder if he really could be like Jesus. And he began to sink. And Matthew recorded that in response, immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little, look what he says, you of little faith. He said, why did you doubt? Which is a really interesting question if you think about it. I mean, what exactly was Peter doubting? I mean, sure, he's doubting that he can walk on water, but see, I would say at a deeper level, I think he was doubting that he had what it took to be like Jesus. It's almost like as the account opens, Peter demonstrates incredible faith in himself. He believes that he could do what Jesus was doing if Jesus invited him to do it. And so when Jesus invited him, Peter walked out on the water. But then almost immediately, clouds of fear rolled in and Peter doubted his potential and his faith began to fade. I would argue this is a principle that we've all experienced, this fear and faith dynamic. They're incompatible roommates in the human heart. One will always push out the other. When fear rises, faith recedes every single time. And that's what Peter 
experience that day. But, but we got to remember, if Jesus didn't think Peter had the potential to be like him, he wouldn't have invited Peter to follow in the first place. Which, which brings me to a really powerful observation that I think really can help us understand what God is like. And it goes like this. Jesus believes that you can be like him. Jesus believes that you can be like him. He really does. And that's a critical thing for us to embrace because if you think about it, Jesus invited his followers to behave in some highly counterintuitive ways. I mean, he asked them to give with no strings attached and to forgive people who didn't deserve to be forgiven and to live as if other people are more important than they are. I mean, honestly, all that seems impossible until you recognize that Jesus has invited you to follow him. And because of that reality, he believes that you have the potential to be like him. And he gave with no strings attached. And he forgave people who didn't deserve to be forgiven. And he thought of other people as more important than himself, which is stunning when you consider who himself was. All that to say for you to really follow Jesus, you need to believe what he believes about you. You need to believe that you actually have what it takes to be like him. He believes in your potential because God believes in your potential. And I'm telling you, that understanding has the power and the potential to activate all sorts of power and potential in our lives. Power and potential to change in ways that seem impossible. In fact, I would argue that everything changes when you come to recognize that God believes that you can become more like Jesus. Now, as a brief PS, because I just couldn't help myself, I have to show you one more thing. I was like, I cut it out, and then I went back and put it back in, then I cut it out, put it back in. But anyway, um, after spending three years with his disciples, and typically rabbis had disciples for 15 years, so Jesus only needed three because he's Jesus, whatever, right? But after three years with him, Jesus dramatically exited planet Earth. But before he did, he gave his first disciples a mission that after experiencing this teaching may take on a whole new level of meaning for you. Here's what Jesus told him. He said, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. Because at this point, it was all Jewish guys. He says, no, 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 this is bigger than that. I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then look at this, and teaching them to obey. Don't just teach them to know, teach them to be. Just like I taught you something so that you could be something. I want you to teach them something so they can be something. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Take my way of life that you've learned from me and pass it on. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Teach them everything, but begin with the understanding that God believes in the potential of each and every human being to be like Jesus. Nobody has gone too far. Nobody has done too much. Nobody has been disqualified by their choices or lack of abilities. And we know this because of these first disciples. I mean, when I read about Jesus' journey with these disciples, it gives me so much hope for myself because Jesus didn't call the all-stars. He didn't call the A team. He didn't even call the rec team. 
No offense to the rec. If you're here on the rec team, I think that's awesome. I was obviously on the rec team. Okay, so I'm all about team rec team. But Jesus didn't call the A team. He didn't call the varsity. If we're honest, he called 12 painfully ordinary, broken, dysfunctional teenage guys. And after imprinting his life on theirs, they went on to change the world. And so what is God like? Answer number one. According to Jesus, he's not temperamental, insecure, easily angered, and judgmental. What is God like? He's, he's your creator. And he believes that you have what it takes to be like his son. He believes in you. And we'll pick it up there next week. But for now, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time in prayer. Um, we have a tradition, if you're new around here, uh, before I pray, I always invite you, if you're here and you need some prayer, you'd like to talk to someone, we have some friends that'll be under the screen to your left, and they'd love to just meet with you and spend some time. But for the rest of us, let's pray. Father, this, we gather um, just to celebrate your goodness, to honor you as the God who is for us and with us and ahead of us, and we are so, so thankful for that reality. Thank you for believing in us even when we don't believe in ourselves. Thank you for sending Jesus to show us the way and thank you for the invitation to follow. As we enter a new year, um, as individuals and as a community, I pray that you would begin to stir in us a new passion to take an honest look inward, to see those places where we're not living the way of Jesus. And that you might nudge us by your spirit to begin to make the changes that we need to make. Because deep down we know sin hurts us and sin hurts other people. And we want to be a force for good and light in this world. And so I, we thank you. And we bless you and we celebrate you and we love you. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part two.